confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Now, the, the concept of the heart and the concept of the mouth is not literal, but it's a, a sense in which the, the Jewish readers or the readers of this uh, time period would have understood the heart is referring to life with being. Um, and the mouth is agreement. I, I agree, because if, if you had to confess with your mouth, what if you're mute? <laughs> you know, um, you can't speak. Well, are you going to confess with your mouth? Well, no mute people in heaven, sorry. Uh, you can't be saved, no. The whole concept of the mouth, again, is agreement. I'm agreeing that what Christ said, who God is, and what is done is indeed the truth. And so we see the thief on the cross there, and he believed that Jesus was Lord and that God would raise him from the dead because he said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He believed he had a kingdom, he was Lord, and he said, when, future tense, he, so he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. And he said, remember me. So therefore, he is saved. It's not by our works, Ephesians 2 says, it's not by our works that we're saved, um, lest any man should boast. But it's a gift of God. And that's just a, a radical concept. There's no religion in the world that even comes close to this. Martin Luther said all religions can be broken down into two, one of faith and one of works. And so, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, James, chapter 2, he points out that if you're throwing the word around belief as in historically, historically believe or emotionally believe, then that's inaccurate. Because he said if that's the case, then demons can be saved. Do, if you were to ask a demon, I hope you don't, but... Theoretically, if you could ask a demon, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, I used to live with him in heaven. Do you believe he's God? Yeah, I was there in heaven. I saw the, the glassy sea. I saw the angels around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I, I've seen it, yes. Do you believe God raised him from the dead? Oh, man, yeah, I was there. That's a horrible day. I, you know, the day we killed him. Oh, that was great. That, you know. Now, do they have no emotion about it? They do. James says that demons believe in God and they shudder. They have an emotional reaction. In Mark chapter 4, it says they bow down and worship Jesus. The men there at Gesinnerat, when they were in the tombs, it says they came out and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they said, oh, don't torment us before the time. So they had an emotional reaction. But James says, are they saved? No. When is a man saved? When his will is surrendered. When his heart is given over to. With a mouth agreement is, yes, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. At that point, a person is truly saved. So, if a person comes to church and he does it for 30 years, does that mean he's a Christian? No, it doesn't. That means he's got in the habit of coming to church. People do a lot of good things. They brush your teeth every day too. 
People will have a Bible on their coffee table. People do a lot of religious things that have no real value far as heart is concerned. If you were to ask a person who smoked, do you believe smoking causes cancer? Historically, yes, that's true. If you were to ask them, do you believe that someday you can get cancer? Yes, I do. And you take them up to the fourth floor of the hospital, and there's a guy, you know, coughing, has emphysema, and he's smoking, you know, he's sucking his cigarette through the hole in his neck, and say, is this you 30 years from now, 40 years? Is that a possibility? Yes, it's a very good possibility. Either time, is the guy going to quit smoking? No. But when there comes a heart change where he says, I don't want to be that guy in the chair, spitting up blood and smoking a cigarette through the hole in my neck. I don't want to be that person who is living that unhealthy type of lifestyle. And he crumbles up with anger and indignation. It says that in 2 Corinthians 7.11, a godly sorrow produces indignation. A godly sorrow has anger with it. No, I don't want the destruction of sin. No, I don't want to continue in my wicked ways. No, I don't want to continue hurting people. I don't want to continue wounding God with my... There's an indignation. There's a zeal with it. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. There's a zeal with it. There's a vindication. There's a clearing of yourself. There's this heart in it. There's a confession in it. And he crumbles it up and he goes to the pharmacy and he gets a patch and he puts it on his arm and he finds a support group or whatever he needs to do. At that point, you see the resolve in his heart, the agreement in his mind, in his thinking has taken place. It's not a concept going, yeah, I probably shouldn't do it, huh? Yeah. There's a lot of people that come to Christ that way. Do you know you're a sinner? Yeah. Do you know you should stop sinning? Yeah. Do you know Jesus is going to judge sinners? Yeah. Do you want to give your life to the Lord? Mm, okay, why not? You see, there's something wrong there. There's not that heart. There's not that confession of the mouth. Again, confession of the mouth doesn't say, pray this prayer after me, now you're for sure you're saved because you open your mouth and pray that prayer. No. It's, a conf- it's an agreement with, I am a sinner. I truly am damned to hell. God is going to judge me to an eternal damnation. And not only that, but right now I'm sinning against the God who made me as a plan and a purpose for my life that I'm not fulfilling. And there's this agreement with, I've got to call out to God and be saved. That's when salvation is true. When Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and you believe in his Father who sent the Son and there's only one way of salvation through the Son. Now verse 11 of chapter 10 says, for the scripture says, hey, that pretty well settles it, doesn't it? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. So Paul is saying, this isn't me. Now, remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing an apologetic discourse to critical, or to, not critical, um, probably not the best word to be used, but to skeptical Jews, as well as to Gentiles. And he just got through in chapter 9, as you remember, on that most difficult passage, saying, not everybody who's a Jew is right with God because they're a Jew. If that's the case, then why isn't Esau right? Why isn't Ishmael right? They're both from the children of Abraham, but yet they weren't the chosen. 
And so now he's coming back and he's saying, look, salvation can come to you. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. It's by faith in the God. See, Abraham had faith, Genesis 15, 6 says, and that is why he was accounted unto righteousness. And it, he was at that time an uncircumcised Gentile. <laughs> Abraham in chapter 15, circumcision didn't come till chapter 17 of Genesis. Think about it a minute. Abraham, if you look from chapter 11, the last part, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and in 15, verse 6, where he was counted as righteousness, what did Abraham do right? You'll see, he almost did nothing right. He followed God's voice. He came into the promised land. He believed in the Lord. He worshipped him to the degree of knowledge he had. But really, he was an idol-worshipping Gentile up until just a few years previously, and really he had, he had no good works of true faith in God. And so again, what was to save Abraham? His circumcision? No. He, he believed before he was ever circumcised. He was saved by faith. God said, Abraham, look at the stars. Yeah, that's how many kids you're going to have. I believe you, God. And he was saved. He believed God. He believed God's words. He believed that God was able. He believed that God could do it, even though he was an old man, even though his wife was an old woman. It did not matter. He believed that God was able. We're back in Romans chapter 4 now, remember? And God accounted that to him as righteousness. And so now we come, and the Scripture says, this is what the Bibles teach, and of course the Jews didn't see it, so he starts quoting Old Testament passages of Scripture, such as in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. You know, this word in the Greek, as well as the word in the Hebrew, there's really not a good translation for the word. The word here, matter of fact, in the Hebrew, if you look in your Bible in the Old Testament under Isaiah 28, 16, it says, shall not make haste. That's the way they translate the word. The concept is here is that all fear is taken away. There's no worry. There's no concern. There's no doubt. There's no fear. It's all taken away. And so whoever believes on him and truly knows him and trusts in him, all of the concerns future-wise, are taken away. You fully believe that what God said he, was, he would do, he's able to perform. Remember that passage over in 1 John. Turn there if you would. That 1 John chapter 4 passage... First John chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. 
but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now the, the word here, fear, is, is a terror. And this is what he's talking about. God wants you to have a confidence before him, knowing that your salvation is sure. My son Nathan, this last Sunday night, we were heading home. And he said, Dad, how can you know for sure you're saved? I said, great question, because you already said it out of your own mouth. What did I say? It is possible to be sure. You didn't say, Dad, is it possible to be sure? You said, how can I know I'm sure? How can we know for sure that we're saved? You can know. It's when you put your total faith in the work that Christ did on the cross, you are saved. You know, I look at some of these Old Testament figures sometimes, and I just look at the commentary of God in the New Testament on them. Now remember, God doesn't look on the outward man. God looks upon the heart. And that often trips us up. But I think of old Lot. Now, if you think about Lot, a lot, that's called meditating on Lot. But if you meditate on Lot a lot, it does come to you concerning his lot in life. No, it has nothing to do with that. And his heavenly lot. That here's this guy, we see him tagging along with Abraham. He sees there as they're arguing, he looks down at the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, great place to raise cattle. Not a great place to raise kids, but a great place to raise cattle. And he goes down there and it says he pitches his tent toward Sodom. The next little snapshot we have, he's living in Sodom. And then later we see that he was a ruler in Sodom. But what we learn about this guy is why he's in Sodom. Remember, that's, that's, he gets carried away one time and Abraham has to save him. But then the next scene, the only time we ever hear Lot talking is where these two angels show up saying, Hey Lot, God's going to destroy this place. But first, these, these angels are testing Lot to try to open his eyes to how wicked and perverted of a generation he's in. The, the strangers are there, and, and Lot's out in the city gate where the wise men would sit. And they said, uh, oh, you're strangers here. Come into my house. He goes, no, 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 we're going to sleep out in the open square, which was traditional in those cities of that time. And Lot insisted, said, no, 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 come to my house right now. And he goes, no, no, we're going to stay out here in the open. No, you can't. And he persisted, come into my house. Well, as evening set, the old men and the young men, all these homosexuals came out and wanted the new flesh they hadn't had before. And Lot comes out and says, Oh, brethren, gross. And he shuts the door behind him and they just start pressing in saying, Get out of our way. Listen to me. Don't do this evil. Who is this guy? He keeps acting like a judge over us. And the angels reach out and grab him and pull him inside. And there these men are struck with blindness. They're still trying to find the door. And there the angels say, you've got to get out. Any other relatives, grab them. We're on our way. And it says Lot lingered. 
And why he lingered, the angels grabbed him and his wife and his two daughters that had not yet been married and literally dragged them out of the city and said, Lot, take off to the mountains. And Lot goes, oh, you know, I'm sort of afraid up in the mountains. There's a little city over here. It's just a little one. Can I, can I go over there? And he named it Zoar, the same place. He said, oh, I want to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah because it looks like Zoar as it reminded him of Egypt. So we still see a lot of Egypt in the heart of Lot. He stays there for a while. It doesn't work out. He ends up heading out to the mountains. Remember, his wife turned around, gazingly looked at Sodom. She was turned to a pillar of salt. So he's up living in a cave with his two daughters. They get him drunk. Get him, they get pregnant by their own dad. That's all we hear about Lot in the Old Testament. But look over, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 2. Notice there in verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to, to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Pay attention, San Francisco. And in verse 7, and delivered, notice this, righteous Lot. What? Read on. Who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Righteous Lot, righteous man, righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Notice there it also mentioned that he was a just man. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly now they're calling Lot godly, out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So Lot is called just, he's called righteous three times, and he's called a godly man. Go back and read Genesis again and see if you can find, um, you know, what's that guy, you know, the, the pitcher, try to find uh, Wally or whatever. Waldo, yeah, try to find Waldo in that picture. Try to find righteous Lot, just Lot, godly Lot, uh, there in the book of Genesis. I can't. But God, you see, looks upon the heart. And we don't ever have the whole story. God saw that Lot was tormented with the wickedness. God saw that Lot hated the wickedness. God saw that Lot was trying the best he could to turn things around, and he couldn't make it. And remember, Abraham, knowing Lot was down there, said, would you destroy that city if there's 50 righteous people? How about 40? How about... And he finally gets down, he says, what about 10 righteous? God said, I wouldn't destroy it for 10 righteous. Abraham thought, I've got Lot and his family under control. But unfortunately, there wasn't any righteous but Lot. But he didn't get down to the number one, but God wouldn't have destroyed it even for one. And so we're, we have hope today. So you might be here saying, Brian, I'm really struggling as a Christian. So did Lot. But Brian, you don't understand, man. I, I work about around a bunch of heathen that really drag me down. 
so did Lot. You don't understand. My family sometimes is really carnal and, and gets me down. So did Lot. How are we accounted before God as righteous? Remember back in Romans chapter 4? Let's take a little refresher there. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, declares, gives as a gift, righteousness, how? Apart from works. Folks, we've got to get this ever so clear. Works are a wonderful part of the Christian life. They always go hand in hand with the Christian life. The more obedient you are, the more blessed you are. The more you give, the more you surrender, the more you pray, the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to grow, the more you're going to be fruitful, the more you're going to be blessed. All of these things are true and all how we need to exhort, actually the word is provoke, irritate one another to love and good works. We need to irritate each other to death until we're doing what we know we're supposed to be doing. Let's all get our pens out and poke each other, saying, come on, man, read your Bible more. Ow, ow, okay, okay. Come on, man, you, you can go to prayer meeting. Oh, man, I'm tired. Oh, oh, okay, okay, let's go. We need to do that. But you know what? None of that makes you more righteous. None of that makes God go, wow, I guess I will take him to heaven after all. You're made righteous. You're made just. You are saved by the work that Christ did on the cross. Period. That's it. The thief on the cross. Remember, his hands were tied. He could do no good works. His feet were tied. He could do no good works. And therefore, that perfect love casts out all sense of torment. No, we should have boldness, knowing that judgment for damnation is going to come, we should have boldness. Now, John goes on and says there earlier in 1 John chapter 2, knowing there's going to be a judgment for the righteous unto good works, let us abide in him, little children, so we're not ashamed. Ashamed of what? Going to hell? No. Ashamed that we don't have more good works. We haven't stored up more treasure in heaven. And that we're not close to God and haven't walked fruitful with God as we could have. So there is that sense of shame that where we could have been more fruitful or could have stored up more treasures or as we look at our life, we've built every day another brick is built on your house, whether you like it or not. Every day you're adding onto your house and, and you don't want layers of hay, wood, and stubble. But you want that fire to be burned up and most of the house remains. Only lost a few walls here and there. I can still tell there's, tell there's a house standing. You see, you want the precious metals of a good Christian conduct and good Christian life to be there. But none of those things make you saved. And so, in verse 11, notice that important, important word. You want to underline it, star it, put a highlighter through it. Because now we're looking at the flip side of the coin of chapter 9. Whoever, 
believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, if you were here with us in Romans chapter 9, remember there he said that God chose Jacob over Esau before they were yet even born. God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What will you say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Hey, it's not to him who wills nor of him who runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. What do you mean? Well, God hardened Pharaoh because he wanted to. And God has compassion on him he wants to. Oh, I, I don't like that. Who are you, old lump of clay, to talk to the potter? But now he comes back and, and you say, well, hold it. I, I don't like that doctrine. I think that if a person wants to ask Christ into their life, they should be able to. All right, go for it. That's what we're learning in chapter 10 now. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame. But if I call upon the name of the Lord, doesn't that mean I was predestined before the foundation of the world? Yes, it does. What if I don't call upon the name of the Lord? Well, you mean you don't want to do what's in chapter 10, whoever calls on the name of the you know, Yeah, that's right, I don't want to do that. Well, go back to chapter 9. Whomever God hardens, whoever he wills, he hardens, and that's you. So, now you say, well, Brian... How do you put those two together? I don't and I can't. I can't put them together. I don't know. Well, only those who are predestined for eternal life will be saved. Isn't that true? Yes. Well, who do you know who they are? You'll never know until you preach. Spurgeon said if God had put a yellow stripe up all believers' backs, he would go through London lifting up coattails. Whoa, there's a yellow stripe. Hey, let me share the Lord with you. But the fact of the matter is he hasn't done that. And so as we're going to see here in chapter 10, Paul gets very practically, very practical. And he says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So if you're a Jew, you've been raised in a very religious form. It doesn't mean you're saved, folks. Brian, I could sing you a song with telling you all the books of the Bible. So what? I got a box full of verses I've memorized from the navigators. So what? It doesn't matter how Jewish or religious you are. Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Have you, with all of your heart, said, Jesus, be my Lord? Have you confessed and agreed with your mouth? Yes, he is God and I must follow him. If you've not made that kind of commitment, I don't care how much you know, you don't know enough yet. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the mind. You have to believe with your heart. Give your surrender. Give your volitional will over to God. Say, God, be the Lord of my life. Well, Brian, I didn't know anything about God till I was 25. I mean, I was raised by an atheist dad, and my mom was an alcoholic, and, and I didn't, you know, I, I saw a church. I honestly had a guy. I used When I was working years ago after high school back in Arkansas there, and, and uh, it's a whole other story, but there was this guy that was working there, and he was about 25 years old. And I started to witness to him, 
And it was totally foreign. He's like, now, Jesus who? Jesus Christ. Did he come out of India? I mean, this guy knew nothing. And I took him outside, and I looked down the street. I said, you see that white building with a cross on it? He goes, yeah. He goes, what is that? I don't know, some kind of religious building, I know. What's the cross? He goes, I have no idea. I've seen that. Ever. What's that thing mean? He had literally not any concept of Christ whatsoever. Well, you know, he could get saved by simply at that point in time knowing one paragraph of information. I tell him, Jesus Christ loves you. He died on a cross for you. And you know how you do things wrong and you feel bad about it and you know you shouldn't be doing them, but you do it anyway? That's sin. And that right there is keeping you from knowing the God who created this world. But Jesus Christ died on a cross and your sins can be forgiven right now and he'll give you the gift of eternal life. Would you want that? Right there, if he were to pray, that would be it. You are saved. From what? From simply asking the Lord into your life. So one knows volumes of information. He's a Jew. The other is a Gentile, knows nothing about God. It doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. All who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus says, no one comes into me. No one comes into the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It doesn't matter if you were raised in a cult. It doesn't matter if you were raised by an atheist. It doesn't matter. Right now is what matters. Do you this moment know Christ? Have you asked Christ? Have you called out to him for salvation? Well, what about the pygmies over in New Guinea who have never heard about the Lord? You're not a pygmy, you're not in New Guinea, and you have. <laughs> How about you? Let's let God work on them. Let's work on you right now. If you will call on the name of the Lord, he's rich. And salvation, folks, is rich, as most of you here know. And if you haven't, called on the name of the Lord and don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can never know how rich it really is. It is so wonderful to be saved. It's so wonderful to have a Bible. It's so wonderful to know God hears your prayers. It's so wonderful to know that when I sin, blow it big time, fall flat on my face, do something I know that I should never have done, to know that God doesn't condemn me, he picks me up, brushes me off, and says, Brian, you're a king's kid now. Quit acting like a gutter urchin and start walking with me now. And just to have his arms placed around me, the cleansing, healing power of his love and forgiveness, it's wonderful, you see. And so in the same way, he will be rich to you. God, starting tonight, will hear your prayers, receive your prayers. You can look to Him for strength. You can look to Him for power. You can look to Him for forgiveness. You can look to Him for mercy. You can look for His information, His Spirit. God's Almighty Spirit will speak to your heart, will actually live in you and speak to your heart about all the issues in your life. He'll help you comb your hair in the morning. He'll help you tie your shoes. If you don't believe me, ask my son Tracy. 
God helps him every day. God helps me by helping him every day. God will help you drive to work. God will help you every second at work or at school or wherever you're at. God will be with you. God will help you. If you will indeed call upon him. But you have to call out to him. And it has to be with a whole heart. And if your attitude is, well, yeah, give it a try. I'd say, forget it. Let the pangs of this world sink you that much deeper until you're finally flat on your back and there's nowhere else to look up. You know, sometimes the fool has to have the world slap him so hard, knock him down so bad, that he finally says, okay, I need somebody, I need somebody to give me instruction. You know, it's like uh, at Christmas time, you know, the kids will get the box of toys, you know, whatever it might be. And do you want some help putting that together? No, no, I got it, you know, and whoosh. I rip it open, you know, and rip this plastic bag and that, and and they're, you know, 20 minutes later, oh, they're all mad, and they're wanting to smash the thing, and you go over and you say, calm down, what's wrong? It's not working, this thing's a piece of junk, and you know, oh, hold on. Let's look at the instructions. Oh, I don't want to take that kind of time, I don't want to deal with it, I just want to, I just want to play with it. Well, that's not the way life works. And God will make it until you're flat on your back and you're frustrated going, well, it's not working and I hate it and I just want to smash my life. I want to get it over with. I want to kill myself or I want to end my marriage or I want to stop. Just stop. You're now frustrated. You're flat on your back. You've got to look up. You're ready now for some instruction, aren't you? Okay, let's look. Step number one. You are a sinner and there's no good thing that dwells in you and apart from Christ, you can do nothing you need to come to Him. And boy, how rich it is to know Jesus. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And I'll tell you, if you're walking with God, you're growing in grace, you can say that tonight. Well, in verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Very clear. He rich to you if you'll call upon him. And also what? You shall be saved. If you've called on the name of the Lord, you're saved. Now, I do want to make an important point here, and that's over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Turn there if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There he's talking about and salvation. In verse 18 he says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And next week we're going to talk about that, our ministry of reconciliation, our ministry of being a witness, as we finish up chapter 10. But in verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. You might circle that word we and put your name there by it. Brian is an ambassador. And, you know, don't put Brian, put your name. If it's Brian, then put Brian. But of Christ Jesus, as though God were pleading through us. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
For he made himself who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we're out telling the world, just call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But I'm a sinner. It's okay. Christ has already reconciled us through his blood. But what if I sin afterwards? He's already, there in verse 19, he's no longer imputing your trespasses to you. In other words, he's no longer counting your sin to you. He paid for all of them on the cross. So now as we slip and fall, it's just a slip and fall. It's not a sin anymore. It's just, stop it. (laughs) It's going to hurt you. It's going to harm you. But no way can our sin any longer separate us from God. That's Romans chapter 6. Why? Because we're no longer under the law. Now we're under grace. And so when we sin now, dad grabs us and says, hey, that's not the kind of behavior we have in this house. And if we say, okay, then we just go on our way. And if we say, well, okay, he'll say, you know, go in the room. I'm going to give you a spanking. And he scourges every son whom he loves. And he does it. But he doesn't hold it to our account. God will discipline us. God will deal with us. God will scold us. God will do whatever it takes for us to walk on that narrow road that leads to life, but he'll never separate himself from us, and he'll never see us in our sin again condemned. That's the word that we have to the whole world. Boy, isn't that just a great word? Now, that person says, great word, I love it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm just not ready. Well, then we read chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. We then... You see, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, or verse, the first couple of words, we then, as workers together with him, God, also plead. So now we have another pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The word grace is also the word gift. Don't receive this gift of God. Don't, don't push away God's mercy. Don't push away the cross of Christ. Don't push away... God's hand reaching out to you, the Lord knocking at the door of your heart. Don't push it away. Don't receive this message in vain saying, hey, that's really great. And if God's so loving, well, he'll let me live another 50 years in sin before I receive him. Don't do that. For he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. But now is the acceptable time and now is the day of salvation. And as we read on and over in Hebrews, which we're not going to do tonight, the point he's making here is this. Salvation isn't yours just to ask for, but first it's his to give to you. And that extension of God's gift is not always handed out to you. You see, in John chapter 6, he says, nobody comes, unto the Father, or nobody comes unto me unless the Father draws them. And it says here, it's an acceptable time. There's a certain allotted time that God will soften your heart. There's a certain moment in your existence on earth when your heart is ripe to receive Christ. And so if you're one of those people that says, man, I've got it figured out, you know. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And, you know, right before I die on the deathbed, you know, I'm just going to say, okay, you know, pray with me, Pastor. You know, what do I say, you know? And then I'll receive the Lord and then beep, and I'll go to heaven, you know. I got both best of both worlds, you know. Or, you know, I'm in the car and right as I see that semi come in the opposite direction, I'll go, Lord, receive, you know, forgive my sins. I'm coming in my life right now. Oh, man, no. And off I go. 
I've got it all figured out. It doesn't work that way, you see. Because our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are desperately deceitful. And for us to ever have that rightness of heart to say, Christ, come into my life, that has to be a prior work done by God. Back to chapter 9 of Romans. God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardened. It's not to him who wills. It's not to him who wills. What does it mean then? Whosoever will call upon his name. That's after first God's done the work of grace and mercy. After God has called you, after God has showed you your sinful condition, after God has let you know of his grace and his mercy, at that acceptable time, now is the time, now is the day, receive him now. And if you say, well, maybe tomorrow, guess what? It may never come. That one open door may only be one open door. Tomorrow you're totally off doing something else and it's not another 30 years till you even think about your sin or think about God again and by then your heart's too hard. If you can say no to God today, you can definitely say no to God tomorrow. And if you can say no to God two or three times in a row, you will probably quite easily without much burden at all be able to say no to him the rest of your life. This is serious business, folks. But Brian, it seems so simple. It seems so easy. It seems so free just to come to God just with a couple of words out of my mouth, a confession, agreement, my heart saying, God, be the Lord of my life. You're right. It is easy. It is simple. God already did all the work. But remember, it's not to him who wills or him who runs, but it's God who shows mercy. It's God who still has to save you and he can only save you if your heart is truly believing him as Lord and your heart can only receive him as Lord at the time God is touching your heart. So whosoever, come. But if you can say, not today, it may never happen again. And that's the scary part. And that also takes us into the rest of chapter 10, which we don't have time to do tonight. But if you are here tonight and you have never made that definite point in time, that definite confession, agreement with God, that heart surrender to Jesus as Lord, folks, I can't encourage you enough to do it. When? Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you will call upon him, he will help you. Today, don't delay. It's today. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And boy, what a joy it is to look at old Lot, to realize he believed in you. With his whole heart, he really did. And he really did have a relationship with you. That old Lot was as grieved over that sin as you were, God, but we just never could see it outwardly, but yet the work had really been done in his heart. How can we ever judge? We can't. We don't know. We just don't know. Only you know. Only you can look upon the heart. But God, we know our heart, and we know exactly what you're looking at because we know it ourselves. And if you're here tonight, and you need Christ to come into your life right now, just call out to him. Here's a simple prayer, that one that's similar that I prayed. And just right now, just say, Dear Heavenly Father, in your heart, just cry out to him from your heart. Just cry. I'm here, God, before you.
And I am a sinner. And my sins have kept me from you. And I know that the wages of my sin is an eternal damnation. But I know the free gift that you're offering me is salvation, eternal life with you, and a freedom right now from my sin. And I ask that you would come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. All of me. Whatever you say, I'll do. Now give me your strength and your power to read your Bible and to do exactly what it says. And to follow you with all my heart. To love you and to serve you and to bless you because you made me and now for me to live out that purpose. Thank you, Lord. I receive you. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' precious name, amen.